Welcome to the CCW Safe Podcast. We're joined today with National Trial Counsel Don West and a special guest, Everett Baxter. Everett uh, is a longtime Oklahoma City Police, a colleague of mine, more so when I was in the uh, District Attorney's Office, but we used Everett on a lot of violent crime cases. Everett, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your, your background. Well, first, thank you for uh, for having me. It's it's uh, it's an honor to to come out here and be able to speak on on some of the things that I do. So my name is Everett Baxter. Um, I, I retired in December of 2020 from the Oklahoma City Police Department. I spent 17 years in the crime scene unit where uh, I saw a large number of homicides and officer-involved shootings, um, and I I was afforded the opportunity to attend a significant amount of training around the country in bloodstain pattern analysis, shooting reconstruction, crime scene reconstruction, crime scene investigations. I, I have developed several courses that I teach on my own, so I have a, a basic bloodstain pattern analysis course, a shooting reconstruction course, and a two-week crime scene investigations course. I'm in the process of doing that. I've also written two books Right. on how to process crime scenes, the complete crime scene investigation handbook and the workbook. So, you know, I kind of understand law enforcement agencies aren't always with the finances to be able to send somebody to training. So my guy, my, my reasoning for, for that book and the way I wrote it was hopefully an agency can purchase that book. They can read the, the, the handbook and then the workbook has exercises to do. Um, I, I've taught... Uh, um, forty some classes in each each of those categories, if not more, um, over fourteen hundred hours of, of continuing education training. Um, I've taught in many states. Um, I've taught in Canada as well as South Korea. So, as far as how this might relate to a CCW Safe member, if if a member was involved in a an incident, a self defense incident, shooting, or any kind of use of force, how would your role be of, an, uh, of importance to a CCW safe member? What I look at um, from my standpoint is the physical evidence. And if the physical evidence is documented, that evidence can tell a story. So we have witnesses that may say, this is what happened. Or we may have another witness that says that happened. Well, what does the physical evidence say happened? And I look at it from an objective standpoint. When someone interviews, you've interviewed numerous people over your career, a lot of that is subjective. Well, I look at the objective side and the more objective I can be. So I want to tell what does the physical evidence say? And if you look at it and you objectively look at the evidence, you'll be surprised at what information you can gleam just from the physical evidence itself. I know as a homicide investigator, and I'm sure, Don, when you were in private practice, that interpretation of the evidence sometimes can be the most important element of a, of a criminal defense case. 100%, and from my perspective, of course, if you start with a courtroom case, from the perspective of the jury, all they know about the case is what comes in through the uh, expert testimony, mm -hmm. through the other witnesses. So their understanding of what happened is based solely on what they're given in the courtroom. They're not supposed to bring in what they've read in the paper. In fact, yeah. if they've read too much, they won't be on the jury to start with. Yeah. So my job, I think lots of times, is to reconcile the physical evidence, the expert opinions, with any statements made by the accused, by the defender. It's, I think, critical because in a self-defense case where the prosecution has to prove it wasn't self-defense, that doesn't start until there is some defense evidence of self-defense. Yeah. Whether it's through the state's case or through your own case, it often means the accused is testifying. And if you have physical evidence, if you have expert opinion, that's consistent with the statements made by the accused, you're in great shape. Yeah. If you have a, a client who's made statements that are refuted by the physical evidence, then you're in big trouble. Yeah. 
and frankly, in my opinion, the more you can rely on the science to establish what happened, and the less you have to rely on the accused, yeah. uh, the better off you are as a lawyer in convincing the jury. Yeah. Yes. So, Everett, uh, give us an example of, of we, we were talking previously about a case you'd worked here in Oklahoma where the wound helped you establish the positioning of the body. So one of the, when we start looking at, at things, if I could just take a, just a step back here a second. Crime scene investigations is finding the pieces of the puzzle. Crime scene reconstruction is putting that puzzle back together. Mm -hmm. What does that say? So one of the things I go through when I first start doing these is, is inventory and the puzzle pieces that I have. And so when I go through, like, like this particular case, um, this gentleman that was shot has a gunshot wound in his, essentially the, the right elbow with an entrance and an exit. He has a gunshot wound in the center, roughly center mass of his chest and an exit wound on the side of the chest. He's got another entrance wound in the left, left elbow that exits. Mm -hmm. He's got an entrance wound on the shoulder and then several in the back. So examining these things, he's got blood stains on the back of his, on his back. So he's not wearing a shirt. And when we start looking at these blood stains, you know, my determination in this case is what are those blood stains? Yeah. And I look at it and I determine that these blood stains based on size, shape, and distribution, which is commonly what we do in the blood stain pattern analysis, those the majority of the stains on his on his back were what we referred to as back spatter. So in a gunshot wound, if I were to shoot you at this close distance, I'm going to have blood that is projected back towards myself. If there's an exit, there will be forward spatter. Mm -hmm. So there will only be forward spatter if, if the bullet exits the body. Mm -hmm. So if you get shot and the bullet remains inside, you'll have back spatter. Okay, so looking at the at this, my initial determination was it's obviously spatter. Well, my next step is to determine what position was this individual in when they were shot. So they have an entrance wound and an exit wound, and an entrance wound and an exit wound. <clears throat> One of the steps I look at is okay, what if his arms are just down to the side? Mm -hmm. Okay. If his arms are down to the side, I've got a problem over here because he's got an exit on the left chest. He should have a corresponding entrance on the arm. Mm -hmm. There is none. So by moving it out, he's either arm is up or his arm is back. If I move his arm back, this entrance, exit, entrance, exit, that all lines up as one single shot. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you start looking at the positioning of him and this particular, this was a law enforcement shooting. The law enforcement officer said that he was holding a knife, and there's physical evidence of that. He said he was aggressive when he made the decision to shoot. So looking at, the, at this, okay, if I move the arm back in this, this type of manner, okay, that puts the entrance wound to the rear of the back. Okay. And then if I move this all and line this all up, because this is a single shot. Um, this individual was shot seven times. There's seven cartridge cases, and there are seven shots. Um, the, the, all of the count in the, in, the, in the law enforcement officer's firearm is all consistent. It all indicates there were seven shots, seven cartridge cases. So this, is, this would indicate that, oh, there may be eight. Mm -hmm. But if you line it up, there ends up being seven shots. Right. Okay. So by moving this back and putting this entrance wound behind mm -hmm. the back, yeah. okay, that puts it back here, and then moving this back here, okay, that puts him in a position where he's in this manner at the time he gets shot, yeah. okay? I describe this information, you know, from a physical evidence standpoint, then I turn that over and the attorney he is able to pull out, you know, from his, from the client, um, is this a self-defense, you know, were you in fear, you know, that type of thing.
but the physical evidence puts him into this position when he made the decision to shoot. So your assessment then corroborates the officer's testimony that the suspect was aggressive because the posture that you described is an aggressive position. Correct. So then you're, you're now you're complementing the testimony, you're corroborating the testimony, and uh, the whole thing makes sense at that point. Whereas if you couldn't explain the back splatter very well, now you've got an officer shooting someone seven times with no real way to show whether or not this person was being aggressive or not. So. And a lot of people don't realize that the, the justification for a police shooting and a civilian shooting, with some minor, ex or mm -hmm. with some exception, are pretty well the same. There has to be an imminent threat of a, uh, of an, uh, I mean, an imminent, Imminent threat of great bodily harm or death. There has to be an <laughs> imminent mantra. threat of great yes. bodily injury yes. or death. Mm -hmm. That threat has to be displayed somehow, that or corroborated somehow. And a lot of times the evidence found by a technical investigator or a crime scene uh, person lays that foundation for corroborating or disproving a statement, correct? Well. Yes and no. So the crime scene investigator is going to document that, mm -hmm. and they're going to identify those puzzle pieces. Now, it depends. Is that crime scene investigator also qualified to be an expert in the area of crime scene reconstruction? Versus just collecting Correct. evidence. So some mm -hmm. are, some aren't. So just because you're a crime scene investigator doesn't automatically make you a a reconstructionist. And some smaller so, agencies that might be one and the same person, there might be one person that does everything. If they haven't had the proper training yeah. in that area, then they may be utilized in that efforts, but yeah. they're technically just a crime scene investigator. Gotcha. So you want a crime scene investigator to be thorough nonetheless, because that you are is correct. the foundation for the crime scene reconstructionist. Yes, you think about from a reconstruction standpoint and from a crime scene, you, you are developing a parameter with mm -hmm. which these events occurred. Mm -hmm. So I, I use the term work product. If your work product is poor, this parameter is huge. If your work product is good, this parameter is narrow. Um, I remember working on a case that involved multiple shots, several people shooting, uh, not a self-defense case. And um, the effort of the crime scene was to document as well as possible where all the shell casings were because several of the people were using different caliber firearms. Mm -hmm. So if you knew where the shell casings were, it would be a lot easier to figure out who was standing where and who was firing what gun and some of those things. Yeah. And uh, the crime scene person went around and scooped up all the shell casings and put them in one bag. So there was absolutely no way to do a competent forensic examination yeah. um, because it was just sloppy. It was yeah. a, a failure probably to appreciate the significance of properly documenting the scene, whereas someone that understood what the next level might involve, involvement of other experts, uh, firearms, examiners and ballistics people wouldn't have never would have never done that and that is one of the primary reasons I wrote the book that I wrote yeah. mm -hmm. because there are folks out there that just don't have the ability to there you know agencies forensics trainings are paid for training there you're going to pay for it and if your agency mm -hmm. has a small budget you're not going to be able to afford to go to this training but typically they can afford to purchase a book that's 100, 120 bucks, and it's a resource that sits on the mm -hmm. shelf that can be used by multiple investigators. Mm -hmm. And then you have a workbook that has the opportunity to step in, and and these people are able to, at that point, practice that information. So, yes, there are folks out there, and, and I, I've heard a lot of in a lot of my training classes. I've heard a lot of of criticism to crime scene investigators. Mm -hmm. Well, what are we doing to fix that? Yeah. And that's one of the things I, That sounds I like a good, uh, a good resource for lawyers, too, uh, if they have to uh, <laughs> present the testimony or cross-examine the testimony. 
of a, a crime scene investigator. Right, well, let me I say it could be until <laughs> until you pull out that book <laughs> and you're you're wanting to cross-examine me uh, and the judges <laughs> the judges familiar with the book goes please tell me you're not going to use his own book to try to discredit him with. And Donna, he realized that I was the author. <laughs> I'm reminded of our, our defense case of uh, Steve Maddox and how the interpretation of the evidence or misinterpretation of that evidence probably resulted in, in the charges and what Steve had to go through. Yes. Simply by evidence not being thoroughly documented or put into perspective, uh, and that's uh, that was once we were able to put all of those things in a correct perspective. Even the state admitted they had several things. You and I went to that trial, and mm -hmm. the state admitted they had bullet wounds going in the wrong direction and several other uh, things that that, that whole fiasco about the videotapes. Not the systems not being synchronized so that the timestamps weren't accurate. Right. And that that was a failure to appreciate that fact which threw out all of that evidence or threw all of that evidence into question and yeah. had a potential to completely disrupt the case. And it also put the mindset of the officers of the opinion that Steve was being deceitful, that he wasn't telling the truth. That's right. Just that mm -hmm. simple not looking at the, uh, the videos that came from two different DVRs and seeing that they weren't time synced. You know, speaking of that with Everett in, in the house, uh, Steve Maddox's case, the prosecution theory was that, he, that the deceased was approaching where Stephen was standing in the parking lot and was shot off his motorcycle because there was blood on the motorcycle. Of course, the blood was coming from an injury that he had from being involved with uh, Stephen earlier that evening. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the theory was it was a premeditated murder because he shot him while he was sitting on the motorcycle. And Stephen said, no, he got off the motorcycle, he came at me, I did everything I could. Finally, I had to shoot him. And the last several shots mm -hmm. were with very close proximity, including the last one or two when he was on me and we were on the ground. Well, the prosecutor was just sort of throwing that away as typical defense nonsense. But we hired a forensic pathologist who mm -hmm. looked at the clothing that the deceased was wearing. Uh, and no one had seen this before. It wasn't examined closely, or if it was, it wasn't by someone competent. And that person discovered what he characterized as cylinder gap on the clothing of the deceased it was a revolver that was involved, and the... That is a very unique... You know that, right? Dessert. You know what we're talking about. It, it basically was an impression of the gun on the clothing, which proved 100% that they were essentially belly-to-belly belly when that shot mm -hmm. was fired. Which doesn't occur if you're shooting someone at a distance exactly. on their motorcycle. Now, that was a forensic pathologist, but mm -hmm. that's only one of any number of forensic one experts of the, that could be involved. One of the things that I would look at in that particular case, because you think about what are the possible scenarios that could mm -hmm. occur. So when I do my analysis and I look at this, then I would have identified that as a possible scenario, okay? Yes. So he's got a particular soot pattern, the cylinder gap, mm -hmm. on his on it was his a vest. Clothing. It was a leather vest. So mm -hmm. he's got a shot. So what position does he have to be in in order to make that shot? And a lot of times, mm -hmm. if, he's, if he is, let's say, across this room, okay, to make that shot, what kind of odd position does he have to be in yeah. to line up? And, well, and, I'm sorry, and, I may have mis <laughs> misled you a little bit. The cylinder gap residue was on the deceased's vest. That makes a big difference. Yes, that's why I said belly, that, to, belly to belly. Yeah. They were physically on top of each other with the gun in, in between. Yeah. And I would like to think that by our, the efforts of the defense team that we helped fund, they put those things in the proper perspective, which resulted exactly. in a very quick jury decision. And again, mm -hmm. you go back to, to what I had mentioned earlier is somebody put the puzzle back together. Here's what the puzzle said. Mm -hmm. and, and 
you know, we could have 25 witnesses that says this didn't, you know, they, they, they were never closer than five feet apart. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that may be what the witness says, but what does the physical evidence say? Physical evidence says these two individuals are in close proximity to each other that, you know, and, and we can go back and do tests on these um, because you can look at the, the, how, you know, what's the size of that pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we, we can take this in a pistol range and we can do what we call powder patterning test. And you can sit yeah. back there and you can just move that, that firearm out and you go, okay, well, based on the size of this pattern, this, this firearm was two or three inches away. Yeah. Okay. There's at eight inches, just, and I'm just throwing out a figure, just say it at eight inches, there's no soot or stippling. So that firearm is at least eight inches or closer to this person. Mm-hmm. There's no way that it can be five feet away. Well, and you can see when you are able to develop that testimony, and frankly, my personal experience trying a lot of cases, a lot of murder cases in particular, is that some of that isn't either appreciated or even developed until well into the case. And it may be a defense expert that's able to see that and develop that, especially if you're looking for evidence that will corroborate any statements made by the accused. And in the case or the example we just gave, that was critically important evidence. It absolutely confirmed what Stephen had said, and now all of a sudden, his statement couldn't be discounted by the prosecutors. Oh, that's just a defendant trying to get away with murder because they couldn't explain it any other way. A a second function of crime scene reconstruction, once the analysis is done, then a second phase if that, and I've had this happen a few times, it doesn't happen all the time, but we refer to it as statement analysis. What did this witness say? Mm-hmm. Let's compare what this witness said or, or the, the shooter, the defendant. Um, what did they say and what did the physical evidence say? So once you figure out what actually physically happened based off of the, the crime scene reconstruction, then you can go back in and go, all right, this is what your client said, and the physical evidence supports what he said, mm-hmm. versus this witness says that they were five feet apart. No, the physical evidence and the reconstruction refutes what this person is saying. So that is, that is a very, very possible scenario to use you know, mm-hmm. from, a, from an attorney standpoint. Well, how do you get involved in a case now that you're in private practice and, and available to be retained as an expert? Um, I, I receive uh, contact from a, an attorney, and they will, they will provide me some information. They will say, here's what I have. Um, and then I will tell them, here's, here's what I'm able to do. I will provide them with my current CV and a fee schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they will get within their organization, um, and, and sometimes they, they decide to go a different route. Well, a lot of times they'll come in and go, all right, we would like to move forward. Um, I've had some cases where, like it's with the, the federal system, um, I will fill out a, a contract with them, and I'll here's, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, so once you're involved in a case, then you are essentially working for the lawyer. And your communications, your work product is all privileged and private to you and the lawyer so that they can freely talk about the case, you can freely share your opinions, ultimately to decide whether you, are, you offer opinions that might be favorable to a theory of the defense um, and whether or not you, in the strategy of the case, should testify. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Now, from an attorney standpoint, I would I would assume it it all depends on who retains you. <laughs> Family member retains you. You're the attorney. I, I, is that privilege still there? I, I know from most of the stuff I've done, family pays the attorney. The attorney then pays me. There, the privilege is here. Yes. Yes. So and that's a, a I, relatively easy. That's easy to fix. Address. Yeah. Yes. That's so. I, 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 and I say that because I've had family members, you'd be surprised how many times a year I get a family member calls and says, can you do this? Well, I can, but there's no, there's no attorney no privilege. expert privilege there. 
Mm -hmm. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I have to put this information out. Um, so get with your attorney, um, and, and that's, that's what I provide. Well, I guess my point is, as with you, other experts, too, can be hired by the lawyer. It doesn't really matter who pays the person. Correct. It's really a question of who has retained them as an expert. And um, once they're engaged in the case, then they're working with and for the attorney. Their work product is private, and that gives the opportunity to consult with people that can help, for example, provide questions that they might ask the expert on the other side, or to help identify other experts that might be retained to help the case, that there can be a free flow of information without fear that everything has to be turned over to the other side. <coughs> In that case, you are correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and that's, I, I, I work with many attorneys. I've actually got a couple of cases where, I, like, I, I, I've got, that I'm working with a family member. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of the time, it's, it's, a, um, it's an attorney. I would right. say 99.9% .9 of the time. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's to be expected. Yes. Sure. Everett Don was just asking you about how you were retained. What, uh, regardless of who actually retains you, what does an hour of your services cost? Uh, my current hourly fee is $225 an hour. Okay. Um, and that, it, it, roughly, it's anything that I do. Okay. So, you know, if I'm looking at an analysis, there's a lot of times where I can come in and go, I can, I can fly down and, and look at something, um, but if you have a private investigator, it's going to be a whole lot cheaper. Can you get this and this and this? So I, I don't just come in here and go, okay. how, how can I make the most amount of money? I'm not, I'm not out here to, to milk all of these, you know. But And I bring that up because as a... CCW Safe member, one of the member benefits is all private investigator and expert witness costs are, are covered. So your services alone could cost in the tens of thousands of dollars easily. Very easily. Routinely. And, and a lot of times you got to think about there's, there's two phases to that. There is the analysis and the, the reconstruction, and then there's the courtroom testimony. testimony. Yeah. And, and I've had cases where I've been in court for three or four days. Yeah. So you're sitting in court for eight hours a day for mm -hmm. for four well, days. That's the the bill starts running up. I believe on the Maddox case we paid five thousand dollars a day just to have the pathologist on call. Mm -hmm. Oh sure. Just to be available mm -hmm. to come to court if they when they were needed. Mm -hmm. um, we know um, as Everett was talking about, there's the initial review and assessment, uh, and sort of. What is my opinion? Is it the same as being offered? Is, is there some inadequacy in the investigation that we can fix by doing some things? Can we do what you have? You can fly a drone over, Correct. right? You can do special uh, measurements. You can have evidence that wasn't previously processed. You could have it processed and factor all that stuff in. And then once you feel that you're confident you know as much as you can know, you can then communicate that to the lawyer, but that's not the end of it because the next phase, if you're going to actually be a witness, is what you were saying before. You go to court and you wait until it's your turn and uh, tell the jury what you found and uh, being qualified as an expert, you're allowed to give an opinion. So you're then also then able to tell the jury not just what you found, but what you think it means. And uh, that's can be, as we've talked already, it's a critically important part of a criminal case. Yeah. I, I have been, I've been retained in just about every aspect of a, of a criminal case. I've had cases where they said, hey, do a reconstruction, tell us what happened. Mm -hmm. I've had some where they go, we, we, um, we have an expert witness, can you help us with questioning with that? Mm -hmm. So I'll, mm -hmm. I'll write down that. I've had, I've been used as a rebuttal witness to an expert witness. So, so in that instance, you might actually be in the courtroom watching correct. that expert testify, which is a special privilege experts have. Yes. Everybody else is excluded that's going to be testifying. The rule. Experts mm -hmm. can get in, listen to the other expert, and then be called themselves to either agree or disagree and then explain the significance of the testimony. Correct. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a, a forensic expert in the area of crime scene reconstruction 
um, there is a, a significant number of, of uses for them, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. all of them are, are are with the attorney. You know, and a lot of times we go back to we we talk about um, a forensic expert. So from a crime scene reconstruction, we have a client that says this happened, but the reconstruction says this is what happened. So we we have a discrepancy there. Well. I've looked at it over, over the years as, well, is this individual lying? Mm -hmm. Or is their perception different? Because I've worked a significant number of law enforcement shootings where the officer says, I was right here when I shot. No, the physical evidence says you were over here. Okay? Yeah. But they perceive that they were over here. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an area where I look at and I come in and I would go, okay, this is beyond my training side and experience. You want to have a use of force guy come in here and be able to explain why is there a difference between the physical evidence and that. So I don't always look at, well, the client or your defendant said this. This is what the physical evidence said. You know, if, if, the, if the shooter says, I was never there, we got a problem. Right. <laughs> we, right. we got a major problem. But if they say it happened in a certain way and the physical evidence says, no, it was a little bit different, there is another expert out there that can explain that. Mm -hmm. And that's where I would that come misperception. in. Misperception. Correct. That's where I would come in there and say, this is beyond mine. This is, this is an area where you may want to consider looking and, and, at And this. that's pretty well documented, right, Gary, about auditory distortion Correct. and mm -hmm. those kinds of things. I'm so, familiar with that, mm -hmm. I, but, but I haven't had the training in that, so I will, I will pass that along to And then ultimately, those the jury will have to decide are the inaccuracies or misperceptions significant? Does it really matter that they can't remember exactly this sequence because the physical evidence tells that story? Correct. And can also suggest whether or not they reasonably apprehended a, a, a threat of great bodily harm or death. You know, in self-defense cases, you don't have to actually be threatened with a lethal object if you perceive it to be a lethal object reasonably within the context. Correct. You legally have the right to defend yourself even if it turns out after the fact that you're wrong, yeah. that it was a toy gun as opposed to a real gun and or I even think, a cell phone or something. Correct. And as important, I think, for, for defense counsel is I've interviewed and I know exactly what you're talking about uh, as far as the misperception. I've interviewed a lot of witnesses that you know are wrong in what they're telling you, but they're not necessarily lying. Correct. And sometimes that can be tricky, but it's very important to identify that so then the attorney can approach and address that during mm -hmm. the pre presentation of evidence. But yeah, my client believes he was here. The physical evidence will, will show that he was here, but let me explain why that happens. Exactly. And that's, exactly. Very valuable, very valuable in the investigation and the ultimate presentation of the case. Well, and that, that's, again, some of the stuff that I do can be internetworked and useful for other mm -hmm. experts, yeah. you know, that, that is beyond my training experience. And we go back to that same particular shooting that I described um, where this law enforcement was, he perceived a threat. The positioning um, the use of force um, individual that, that was working that particular case wasn't aware that the trooper had ran, I'm sorry, the, the law enforcement officer had ran a significant distance. Mm -hmm. The law enforcement officer had actually ran almost a mile and a half in full duty uniform, vest, mm -hmm. shirt, boots, I mean, and they're, they're traveling, you know, a significant distance, essentially foot pursuit chasing this guy with a knife, and then he ultimately turned around and made a, an aggressive stand, you know, movement towards him. So I was able to come in there and go, well, from here to here and here to here, this is this distance. And this, this use of force expert was then able to come in there and edit their report because they weren't aware of that information at the time. Mm -hmm. And they were able to come in there and adjust theirs and explain 
the circumstances, you know, it was a physical mm -hmm. evidence that they may not have been aware of. Sure. Yeah. That then I then provided to them. Yeah. But in, in, uh, in the Maddox case, uh, a lot of the case when it was first received by the defense team was very different than what it ultimately was by the time we went to court. And, uh, and I get a lot of things from, from folks. Um, a lot of attorneys will come in there and they'll say the documentation is, is not very good. It's, it's a poorly documented crime scene. And I said, well, let's just hang on just a second. Let me, let me look at this and tell you mm -hmm. what, what we can look at. And you would be surprised at some poorly documented crime scenes how they get lucky and take the right photographs <laughs> and, and do the right documentation where you sit back and go, <clears throat> look at this and this and this. And you, you look at these. And so I take a standpoint. I don't, I, I was a crime scene investigator for 17 years. Uh, you know, I do this job. I teach people. And one of the things I teach them is we're human beings. We're going to make mistakes. You, you're never going to process a crime scene perfectly. This isn't TV. Oh, this isn't CSI. The, when I testified um, in the 17 years of working the crime scene, one of the first questions that I was always asked is, how is the CSI TV shows <laughs> different than what we have here? Right. At the DA's office, <laughs> Those, they call that the CSI effect. Oh, mm -hmm. you got to get out and address it right up front because there's an expectation from today's jury pool that. CSI is going to tell them where, when, and exactly how it happened. Yes, and, and you got to sit back and go, oh, no, no, no. And on those shows, they have everything documented. Um, they have all the evidence collected, processed, and in court in an hour. Yeah. I worked a law enforcement shooting at the time I got to the scene, and my job when I got there was the shooting reconstruction mm -hmm. of this incident. It took me 14 hours just to document this crime scene mm -hmm. where this officer was shot at 26 times mm -hmm. with, with a rifle. Mm -hmm. And all my job was to do was the shooting reconstruction of it. I wasn't processing the whole scene. So it, <laughs> Uh, you know, where, where they're done in an hour, I'm still working. I've worked law enforcement yeah, officers. You've all your equipment Heck by yeah. then, have you? I've worked law enforcement shootings where I go out to the scene and, and the sun's going down. And we aren't, we're, we're a couple of hours from finishing. You know, you kind of have an idea where it is. And the sun's starting to come back up. So sometimes when you're <laughs> testifying, you actually have to spend some time and so that the jury doesn't have unrealistic expectations about the collection or the processing or the ultimate analysis. Of, you you of are this correct. Evidence. I spend yeah. a lot of time looking at the jury because there's a lot of times, as a crime scene investigator, a crime scene reconstructionist, one of the things that you have to do to these juries is teach them. Mm -hmm. And if you're not a very well if you're not if you're not a very good instructor of teaching, then what you say kind of goes in one ear and out the other. You've got to get that information to stop. So, you know, when I teach crime scene, teaches blood stain pattern analysis or shooting reconstruction, I encourage the students that go through my classes to teach. Because if you can teach, <laughs> then that helps you when you go into court. And you don't have to just teach crime scene. Make them much, much better Go witnesses. teach something. Yeah. Uh -huh. Teach something in law sure. enforcement, you know. Mm -hmm. We get people to go teach domestic violence stuff. It helps them teach so that they can then communicate to the juries more effectively and, 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 and in a proper manner. You know, and a lot of the stuff that you talk about, other experts talk about, is well beyond the comprehension of the jury um, if you were to actually expect them to know what you, what you know. But they don't need to. No. They have to believe in you. They have to think that you are, in fact, an expert, that you were diligent and thorough, that your opinions are well-considered. And then you just have to give them enough knowledge and education about 
the area of expertise so that they understand how all this fits together. And you're exactly right. You, you just, if you're a good teacher, if you understand what the role you're playing when you're in court is and what the bottom line is that you want to be an effective communicator, Correct. if you are an effective communicator and you have good evidence, you will be persuasive. And at the end of the day, they, the jury will, when they're given that choice to accept or reject all or part of any witness's testimony or reject an expert if you don't think they're an expert, they're checking all the boxes and saying, yeah, I believed him. He was sincere, you're, he you're was correct. credible, he was thorough. And if it's a close case and they have to decide and you've helped one side or the other, then they're going to go with you. Mm -hmm. you, you are absolutely correct. And I think you hit on something there, it, whether it helps one side or the other is really kind of irrelevant to you as an expert, correct? That's why I like doing what I do. Yeah. The events that occurred in a shooting, in a, in a homicide, in any of these things, the events that occurred are the same whether this is a criminal act or this is a self-defense act. Mm, interesting. So you think about what happened. now. In any investigation, you can answer the questions who, what, when, where, why, and how. Crime scene investigation and crime scene reconstruction will tell you what happened or how it happened, not why. Mm -hmm. that's, that's an area, if you think about, I'm on a multi-lane highway, I'm on a seven-lane highway, <laughs> I can drive in two lanes, I have to stay out of the other, you know, I, I can't. As a reconstructionist, I can't say this is self-defense and for or, this is self-inflicted. Mm -hmm. I, I could say it's self-inflicted. What I can't say is, you know, is this suicidal versus accidental? I don't know. That you, won't. You know, and frankly, the big problem I have had with witnesses in the past is when they get out of their lane. Mm -hmm. You know, when they think they're an expert in everything because they're an expert in one thing and they don't appreciate the role that they play and the limitations that they have. Yeah. And they just do what they do, do it well, and then, as you say, fit in the rest of the pieces of the puzzle with other experts, if necessary, or um, other evidence of some sort. I, I can tell you that more often than not, and I'm saying 95% of the, the, the cases I've testified in, in, in court, <clears throat> There are aspects of a reconstruction where there's just not enough information mm -hmm. to say something about. Um, and this, this, I, I worked a case um, in another state where the blood evidence was specifically that. Um, there was a stain that was just outside of the, the visible area and it was blurred. I could guess what I thought it was, but I didn't. I cannot see that to make a proper analysis. I'm not going to make that analysis. Right. I'm, and and right. there's, there's some areas where I've been asked a question. I'll, I'll be asked a question. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's just not enough stuff there. And that's where I think, you know, from an expert standpoint, you also have to identify areas that you just can't explain. There's scientific method, there's scientific laws mm -hmm. that will allow me to come in here and, and, and identify this gap that's missing and be able to say, this is what happened in this gap. Well, if that gap is too large, these scientific laws aren't going to help you fill in that information. And, and as an expert, you've got to be able to sit back there and, and, and say, well, here's what I, you know, here's this. Mm -hmm. And if you identify those, again, that's part of the analysis. The attorney knows that ahead of time going in. If I'm asked this question, my answer is going to be, I don't know, because there's not enough information in here you know, to say that. I think juries respect that. I mean, they don't know everything. They <laughs> want to believe someone who says, I do know this, when they say that. They don't want to think somebody's up there just who's a paid advocate and you really can't trust anything they say because they've already got their agenda. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think jurors in general have excellent BS detectors when yeah. it comes right down Yes, to they it. do. Yes, they mm -hmm. do. And you're yeah. only shooting yourself in the foot if you try to take something too far. 
You yeah, are correct. I, you know, one of the, the mistakes I see a lot of law enforcement uh, when it comes to courtroom, the mistake I see a lot out of law enforcement, I should say, is they tend to get invested in what they believe happened or a us against them mentality. Really, as an investigator, you know, justice is the ultimate goal. Uh, Even more than that, truth. Truth and justice. Yeah. Actually got that tattooed on my arm. If you, so. get, if you get the truth part, the justice comes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's an excellent, so. excellent point, Gary, uh, about not being an advocate or yeah. not, uh, especially as an expert witness, yeah. uh, just calling them as you see them and, and not weighing in on what you think should happen. Well, I've, I've heard a lot of times defense attorneys say, well, is it possible this happened? And, and sometimes officers will just be reluctant to admit, yeah, that's a possibility, absolutely. But you gotta look at all of that evidence, not just this one possibility. Well, and you could throw in another side of scene context. So we're in the room if we got an individual that was on the ground that was shot in this room. And we have a person that says that they were out on the pistol range cleaning their gun and accidentally went off. Well, what does scene context say? Mm -hmm. I mean, we can simply look at the walls mm -hmm. and the windows and go, there's, no bullet, there's no bullet holes in these walls. There's no bullet holes in these windows. Therefore, the shooting had to have happened inside this room. Yeah. So not only are you answering based off of the physical evidence, but what does the context say? And I've, I've been asked a lot of times where they'll go, I want to look at just this one piece of evidence, and it's this water bottle, okay? So I want to take it out of the scene context, and they'll ask you a question. Yeah. This is, well, you know, and I've got to some points where I go, examining this and this alone, ignoring all the rest of the evidence of the scene context, I would agree with you because we kept going down a path and the judge was like, answer his question. Yeah. So I would answer it in that manner, examining it outside of the scene context and ignoring all the other evidence, I would agree with you. But I've had times where I come in there and I've had defense attorneys, you know, as a prosecution witness, and I've had a defense attorney go, is this possible? And you, go, you look back and go, yes it is. Mm -hmm. That is possible, that is a possible scenario, yeah. you know? and. You try, as, an, as a crime scene reconstructionist, to identify all the possible scenarios. I, I can't identify 100% of all the possible scenarios that can occur. You know, and, and sometimes they'll come up, and it doesn't happen very often where I'll go, man, why didn't I think about that? Mm -hmm. this, is, this, is, this is a possible, and we're only looking at one aspect of the scene. Mm -hmm. you know, Looking at the, the evidence and, the, and the, all that other stuff, and you put it back together and you go, I would agree with you. Yeah. And it's that, again, what you, you hit the nail on the head. It's not an us versus them mentality. It's we're here for, for, for the truth and we're here for the justice. In reality, if you were hired by the state or you were hired by the defense on the same case, your conclusions with the same evidence to review, your conclusions or opinions would be the same. Yes, I, and I think from a crime scene reconstruction standpoint, your, your comment that you made is more truth with the same evidence. But what I have found in cases that I've worked is I don't always get all of the evidence. And I've got a, a particular case that, that um, I turned in a report and I, I never received the actual scene photographs. The photographs I got of the scene were through the medical examiner's office. Mm -hmm. well, where is this agency's crime scene photographs? Right. They were never turned over to the defense. Mm -hmm. So when I look at why does one expert disagree with another expert, the first things I start looking at is what information did this expert have that this one did not have? Not necessarily why is there... And that's why I qualify it yes. with that same you evidence. Would, you would mm -hmm. be surprised at, in these yeah. cases of when you have one expert that has a whole lot more information than another one, it's like. Well, I'm, I'm sure Don's seen it plenty. You mentioned paid advocates. 
everybody in that system is paid. Correct. Law enforcement, the judges, the attorneys, the bailiff, the court clerk, everybody is paid to do that job. But for some reason, a lot of times as a prosecution witness or a state witness, you are viewed in one way, but if you do that same job as a defense witness, all of a sudden you're a charlatan or hired gun, hired gun, and you're just mm -hmm. doing it for the compensation. I've experienced that. Oh, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I have. I've done some defense work. You know, it's kind of a standard approach. I don't yeah. think it's typically very effective. Um, no. Maybe when you have that witness, that expert witness, it, it's pretty clear is just in it for the money. You can tell by You're the hourly correct. rates and sometimes and the amount of time that's spent. And, and usually the attitude, frankly, yeah. uh, of the witness comes through when you start, you know. You, you, you are correct. Well, what's mm -hmm. the song, Garden, The Garden of Allah? Uh, with, I think, is I it Glenn know. Fry, where he says, I'm an expert because I say I oh, am. Mm -hmm. I've the always Eagles guy. thought the of Eagles that. Guy, right? Eagle, yeah, it was mm -hmm. either Glenn Fry or Don Henley, one mm -hmm. of them. And, and I, we've all encountered that, you know, not all experts are truly experts. Uh, you know, if he's dependent on his expertise and his area of practice, and if a judge certifies him as an expert, or I forget what that process is called, but recognizes that he is an expert, now all of a sudden he's an expert and can sh and, and sell himself as such. I, I had a case where I was, it was a rebuttal witness, and I had made, you know, one statement that, that I was a control and defensive tactics instructor for the Oklahoma City Police Department. And the judge certified me as a use of force. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I was like, uh, uh well. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting there going, hmm. I, I was I was not really anticipating that. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, guys, we need to wrap it up. Everett, I want to thank you for your time. Come yes, out and, and educate our members on uh, the importance of forensic sciences and, and crime scene re reconstruction. And, Don, it's always great to be on the Likewise, podcast nice with you. Yes. Good to see you, Everett. Thank you. you as I want well, to thank sir. everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, check out the CCW Safe podcast.